Ferdinand Magellan, commander of the Armada of the Moluccas, had thus far managed to convince the rival ruler of Spain to fund a voyage that would allow him to reach the infamous Spice Islands of Southeast Asia via South America. He mistakenly believed that such a trip would be far faster than the established Portuguese route that circumnavigated the continent of Africa. Three mutinies had been raised in an attempt to force him to turn back. He had lost two of his five ships, one to the weather and another to desertion. After a harrowing 38-day navigation of the Strait of Magellan, he and his crew had finally managed to reach the Pacific Ocean, the world's largest body of water. Of course, they didn't know then that it constituted the biggest of the world's four oceans. What they did know was that they had less than three months of food remaining, not nearly enough to survive the voyage and subsequently return home. But to a man of faith such as Ferdinand Magellan, miracles were always just around the corner. Unfortunately, it was his unwavering conviction in his God that finally got him killed. The cape that opens into the Pacific became known as the Cape Desire, because in the words of an elated Ferdinand Magellan, we had been desiring it for a long time. The name didn't fit the pattern for the rest of the expedition, as most of the things discovered by the Portuguese captain were named in such a manner to focus on either geographical features or Christian icons. The strait that he discovered wouldn't bear his name until years after the expedition. Pigafetta, the man obligated to record the journey for posterity's sake, referred to it as the Patagonian Strait, while the crew's astrologer-slash-pilot referred to it as the Strait of All Saints. Although they were elated to finally have traveled to the western side of the continent, their miserable luck didn't immediately turn, as the western exit of the strait is described as a cold miasma, narrow and foggy with white-cap waves hitting protruding rocks that jutted out from the coastline. It was a sailor's worst nightmare. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the adventures of the explorer Ferdinand Magellan. Episode number four, A Race Against Death. Historian Lawrence Burgreen tells us that the Pacific Ocean contains more than twice as much water as the Atlantic, extending over a greater area than all the dry land on the planet. 25,000 islands call it home, and concealed beneath its waters lurks the lowest point on Earth, the Mariana Trench. Until recently, more was known about the surfaces of Mars or Venus than about the depths of the Pacific. But to the sailors on Magellan's three ships, it might as well have been another planet. The Armada hugged the coast up to what is now Santiago, Chile, before turning west into the open ocean. This was when God appeared to have finally answered the crew's most steadfast prayers by placing a steady trade wind at their back. 
the Coriolis force is one of the most predictable aspects of the Pacific. But it was unexpected, as the effect had yet to be charted by Europeans, who had never sailed upon this portion of the sea. Without much to write about, Pigafetta worked to learn and translate the Tultulce language of Patagonia from the two captives that had been previously seized. During their disjointed conversations, the Europeans managed to convince the Patagonian to accept baptism, settling upon Paul for his Christian name. Unfortunately, the indigenous person of South America soon became ill and had to be buried at sea. Paul's fate appeared to be one that they would all share, as they failed to discover any islands where they could forage for resupply. Although the ocean is indeed vast, this lack of rest stops was another sign that Lady Luck hadn't smiled upon the expedition. Looking back at the ship's navigational logs, however, show that a mere few degrees to the south or west, and they would have run smack into Easter Island or Tahiti. Food was their foremost concern after the seals that they had butchered in Patagonia had become infested with maggots. For three months and 28 days, the sailors survived without any sort of fresh food. Crew members reportedly had to eat biscuit, which was no longer biscuit, but instead powder of biscuits swarming with worms. For what it was worth, it stank strongly of the urine of rats. Their second concern was scurvy. Pigafetta documented its spread among the men of the Armada, writing that the gums of both the lower and upper teeth of some of our men swelled, so that they could not eat under any circumstances. When they pushed with their tongues even gently, their teeth wobbled before falling out. Contracting scurvy wasn't an excuse to not work, as the appearance of the disease meant that the men were locked in a race against death. Twenty-nine men succumbed to the illness at this point, reducing the original 260 men who set out from Spain down to a mere 171. The illness comes about due to a deficient diet. Vasco da Gama was the first European to witness an outbreak and understand the disease. Despite his men being miraculously cured after Arabs had sold them some oranges, European doctors were convinced that it was unhealthy air that caused the disease. Oddly enough, the solution to both of the crew's problems came in the form of captured rats from the bowels of the ship. The rodents happened to synthesize and store vitamin C, delivering both a meal and a miracle cure. Magellan was more than protected, as he and his other captains regularly dipped into their own personal stores of preserved quince, an apple-like fruit that gave them more than enough vitamins to fight off the illness. And from what I understand, quince also tastes far better than captured rat. Islands finally appeared off the horizon on January 24, 1521. They caught sharks on an island that they subsequently named Shark Island. It was here that Magellan lost it, reportedly flinging his deficient maps overboard. It seemed that the fabled Spice Islands weren't anywhere near where the cartographers had assumed they were. To the astonishment of all, they crossed the equator on February 13th 
which only served to confuse the Captain General more as they had yet to stumble upon the Malaccas. According to his maps, he had already traveled the entirety of the Pacific Ocean. Worse, he had again entered Portuguese waters, meaning that any discovery of the Spice Islands now would only serve to confirm ownership of the world's most valuable resources to the nation of his birth, rather than the nation that he had chosen to sail for. Ninety-eight days after exiting the strait, the crew finally received the call they were waiting for. They had reached Guam, the largest of a group of volcanic islands known as the Marianasa. Magellan was 3,000 miles to the west of the Hawaiian Islands. Unlike the previous stops, these islands were inhabited, and almost immediately upon their discovery, outrigger canoes sailed towards them. Like Columbus, Magellan referred to these Chamorros people as Indians, in the mistaken belief that the Indies must be nearby. Bergreen describes the first encounter for us, writing, At first, the Chamorros, hundreds of them in their small, maneuverable canoes, encircled the fleet. Fearing nothing, they got on board, and there were so many of them, especially in the flagship, that some of our men asked the captain to have them thrown out. Weakened as they were, however, as 98 days at sea constituted the longest recorded voyage of its time, there was little they could do. Eventually, however, the inevitable occurred with one sailor slapping a native, only to be slapped back in kind. From there, a machete hit to the offending Chamorros sent the natives fleeing back to their ships. From there, multiple Spaniards were wounded by a steady stream of arrows shot from the small outrigger canoes. Magellan desperately called for the fighting to cease, and incredibly, the locals called their forces off as well, before then immediately reopening trade to exchange coconuts and fish for European glass beads. It seemed as though trade had managed to solve all of the misunderstandings. At least it did until it was discovered that a couple of Chamorros stole the skiff right off of Magellan's ship. The next day, 40 armed Spaniards made landfall, burning 40 to 50 houses and murdering seven locals in retribution. Thus, the first ever landfall by a European in this area of the Pacific resulted in direct violence against the indigenous peoples. Disgustingly, Burgreen tells us that the sailors who remained on board the ships, imploring the landing party to return with the internal organs of the slain Chamorros, which they thought would cure their scurvy. During the rampage, the stunned Chamorros offered no resistance. The Europeans at least shed a tear for their victims, with Pigafetta writing that when we wounded many of this kind of people with our arrows which entered inside their bodies, they looked at the arrow and then drew it forth with much astonishment, and immediately afterwards, they died. Others who were wounded in the breast did the same, which moved us to great compassion. You would be wrong if you imagined that this one-sided slaughter would have been a surprising outcome for the Spanish. Professor Jared Diamond explains that the Spaniards' ability to communicate across space via the written word governed their interactions with new tribes. Diamond devotes an entire chapter of his work Guns, Germs, and Steel to the collision of Cajamarca, 
an incredible battle between 140 Spanish conquistadors versus perhaps as many as 100,000 Incan warriors. The head Spaniard, Francisco Pizarro, lured the freshly crowned Incan king into a trap. The conquistadors sprung into action only after the indigenous peoples had crowded into the square. From out of nowhere, foreigners in steel armor sprung out, blasting rifles, cannons, and trumpets to disorient their opponents. Then came a charge of cavalry. The Incans lacked horsepower, relying instead on alpacas and llamas as draft animals. Neither of those creatures could be ridden in the way that the Spaniards had conquered their war mounts, resulting in the mistaken belief that the Spaniard and his horse were in fact one combined creature. Thus, from what had been a peaceful exchange of cultures, the Spaniards scared the living bleep out of the indigenous peoples, and then began the slaughter. The first wave of Incans were mere street sweepers. They panicked and tried to escape, resulting in a mass trampling and suffocation for all those around them. Into the gap, Spaniards stabbed their way to the Incan king's litter and proceeded to kill those who held him aloft on a great litter filled with gold and silver and emeralds. Once they had the king in their control, their opponents retreated in stunned silence. One conquistador wrote that all of the other Indian soldiers whom the king had brought were a mile from Cajamarca, ready for battle. But not one made a move, and during all this, not one Indian raised a weapon against a Spaniard. When the squadrons of Indians who had remained in the plain outside the town saw the other Indians fleeing and shouting, most of them too panicked and fled. It was an astonishing sight, for the whole valley of 15 or 20 miles was completely filled with Indians. Night had already fallen, and our cavalry were continuing to spear Indians in the fields, when we heard a trumpet calling for us to reassemble at camp. The Incans were proud warriors who utilized slingshots, hand axes, and blunt clubs. Soldiers who would have perfected and used their fighting technique hundreds of times before. Yet the Spaniards had steel armor. Thus, a perfect hit with the slingshot, something that every other time before had taken an opponent down, merely bounced off of these foreigners. A thrown hand axe never found its mark. A club hit to the chest didn't stop these aliens. Meanwhile, bullets, steel spears, and swords easily went through the quilted armor of the Incas. Still, numbers matter. My favorite example comes from the Korean War where the still-developing Chinese army relied upon a technique known as human wave attacks. The strategy was to make the American forces run out of bullets before the Chinese ran out of people. Despite established bunkers with machine guns, the Chinese assaults were incredibly effective, particularly from a psychological point of view. Had the Incas immediately pushed back, then there is no chance that 140 Spaniards could defeat 100,000. In fact, the engagement should have never have occurred in the first place. Diamond explains that a related factor bringing Spaniards to Peru was the existence of writing. Spain possessed it while the Incan army did not. Information could be spread more widely, more accurately, and in more detail by writing than it could be transmitted by mouth. That information coming back to Spain from Columbus's voyages and from Cortez's conquest of Mexico sent Spaniards pouring into the New World. The Incas had very little information about the Spaniards, their military power, and their intent. He derived that scant information by word of mouth, 
mainly from an envoy who had visited Pizarro's force for two days while it was en route inland from the coast. That envoy saw the Spaniards at their most disorganized, told the king that they were not fighting men, and that he could tie them all up if given 2,000 Indians. Understandably, it never occurred to the Incas that the Spanish were formidable and would attack them without provocation. Ferdinand Magellan didn't know anything about the indigenous peoples of Guam, but he had a wealth of knowledge regarding Spanish interactions with more primitive societies. That allowed him to make assumptions that were far more likely to be correct. The natives that he faced didn't lift a finger while the carnage consumed their village, much in the same exact way that a surprise attack had stunned Columbus's opponents in the discovery of the New World. Not all of his assumptions were correct, however. The Chamorros were a matrilineal society with horizontal leadership, making it impossible for the captain general to identify the tribe's leader among the men of the village. Despite the reprisal slaughter, the two worlds again began to interact after the raid. Pigafetta describes the people as having teeth stained black and red from a constant chewing of the local beetle nut. Their women walked around naked at different times of the day according to their own tradition. Not having seen a woman in three months, the biographer describes them as beautiful and delicate, and whiter than the men, and have hair loose and flowing, very black and long, down to the earth. The society had advanced boats, small vessel technology that was far more advanced than what was available in Europe. But their most dangerous weapon consisted of a stick, with a fish bone attached to one end. They hadn't needed to develop advanced weapons, as they explained to Pigafetta that they thought there were no other men in the world besides them. The confusion on the ships had come from the fact that the Chamorros were a communal society, a group that shared literally everything. Thus, they assumed that the private property on the boat belonged to all. It was also why they had been so willing to share their food with the strangers. Burgreen informs us that upon exiting, Magellan dubbed the land the Island of the Thieves. But a more accurate name might have been the Island of the Sharers. Three days later, they departed. Had the interaction gone better, Magellan could have learned quite a bit from these people, whom he believed were savages. For instance, their lack of navigational tools resulted in them developing numerous methods of seafaring that worked as well as, if not better than, the European mechanical devices. For instance, they were able to read the ocean swells in order to maintain their course and identify far distant land masses. Clouds also helped them find the proverbial needle in a haystack, that were Pacific Oceans, as the mist and vapors tended to collect above land masses, and their underside occasionally reflected the greenish water covering an atoll. Magellan never learned these techniques, but blind luck saw him seven days later in Samar, the third largest island of the Philippines. These islands were already known to the Chinese and Arab traders, but a new discovery for the Europeans. 
Magellan identified the land as Lazarus, after the biblical character. But 22 years later, another Spanish explorer would rename the chain in honor of King Philip of Spain. Magellan's name was quite fitting, however, as here he finally found evidence that would grant the Armada of the Moluccas a second life. For it was here that Ferdinand was approached by local traders. Soon, caps, mirrors, combs, bells were exchanged for fish, palm wine, figs, and coconuts. Spectacularly, the natives recognized some of the spices that Magellan had brought with him. He was so excited that he decided to show off his artillery to the locals, but the cannon's discharge terrified the guests so much that they attempted to leap off of the top deck of the ship. Calm was restored when it became known that Magellan's slave, Enrique, was able to communicate with these individuals. Slaves tend to be involved in most of these journeys of discovery. Lewis and Clark's slave York made invaluable contributions to their search for a northwest passage. Hernan Cortez's exploration of the interior of Mexico would have never been possible without a woman known as La Malinche. Enslaved, she served as their chief linguist as well as Cortez's mistress. Perhaps less historical, but it remains important to note that Frodo's journey to Mount Doom to destroy the Ring of Power would have never been possible without the chained golem as their guide. Although Magellan gets the credit, the discovery of Enrique's origin means that it was he that was the very first person to have circled the world and returned home. It turns out that the fleet of the Malaccas had unintentionally stumbled upon an Asian trading post. With the help of an actual translator, Ferdinand entered into a Kasi-Kasi relationship with the local king, cutting their chests in order to extract blood, which was then mixed together with wine for the two men to gulp down. Burgreen writes that Magellan's attitude towards indigenous people had undergone a revolution, where he had been content to convert, kidnap, and when it suited his whim, even kill the giants of Patagonia, he felt a genuine kinship with this Filipino ruler, his now blood brother. Soon he began to show off, inviting the king to hold his compass and look at his maps. He again fired off his largest cannon and showed off the abilities that came with European armor, by allowing his men to strike glancing blows against the impervious shell across his body. While giving off a vibe of superhuman powers, the display had to have unsettled the natives. After all, the fleet had 1,000 spears, four for every man, halberds that could slice a man in two, 60 crossbows with hundreds of arrows, and five different types of guns. Three tons of gunpowder had been brought on the exploratory mission. Any trading society would know the danger that comes from men who carry that many weapons. The crew celebrated Easter on the island. Upon being joined by a number of curious locals, they put on a fencing tournament in honor of the king. Ferdinand let his guard down to such a degree that he incredibly offered to destroy any of the Filipino king's enemies, despite knowing literally nothing about the area and its people. Pigafetta immediately got bad vibes about the discussion, 
describing it as ill-fated. But Magellan was convinced in his own divinity at this point. After all, he had survived so much in order to reach islands near his desired destination. In his mind, there was no way that God would abandon him now. Urged on by destiny, he next took the fleet to another island known by the locals as Cebu. Some suspect that Magellan was already working towards the goal of establishing his own fiefdom. After all, when he returned to Spain, he, a foreigner, would have to explain why he had marooned the well-connected Cartengia in South America. He didn't know it yet, but already the Spanish were making their minds up about the crimes that had been reported by his crew that had defected near the entrance to the Strait of Magellan. Earning an ally and local goodwill by destroying their enemy might have been part of a greater scheme to establish dominance. Or Magellan might have just been punch drunk with power. Burgreen would lean towards the latter as he noted that a shadow hung over Magellan, who at this point in time was a fugitive from society and captive to the winds of fate. They set foot upon the shores of Cebu on April 7th. Rather than immediately launching an assault, they attempted to draw out the island's power by sending Magellan's slave Enrique along with others from the crew to serve as ambassadors. To their shock, the local king produced an Arab merchant from Siam, who urged Magellan to produce tribute for the indigenous peoples of the island. Bergreen reveals to us that Magellan scorned the Arabs' live-and-let-live approach to the islanders and refused to pay anyone. He saw the local populace as prey, as helpers, and as heathens, not as equals. And he intended to claim their territory for Spain and their souls for the church. The presence of the Arab altered the course of history, as he insisted to the king that the Spaniards were indeed quite powerful and bloodthirsty. Rather than choosing the course of violence, the king of Cebu joined Magellan as a blood brother through another disgusting wine-chugging ceremony. Although he had gone to the island to destroy the natives, he had discovered an even more advanced group and had immediately changed alliances. The goodwill continued with a mass baptism ceremony, which came with promised preferential treatment from the Spaniards. Ferdinand was so overjoyed that he gifted one full set of Spanish armor to the king. One of the supposed benefits that came with baptism, according to the Spanish at least, was a mixing of the Armada's men with the indigenous women of the island. Pigafetta doesn't spill too many details, but reading between the lines of his work suggests that he was quite smitten with three naked girls whom the prince of the island had ordered to dance for them. In this instance, it might not have been the Spaniards taking advantage of the local women. The people of Cebu placed an emphasis on female sexual pleasure, even going so far as piercing the members of their male inhabitants with what they referred to as a palang, which Pigafetta tells us is a gold or tin bolt as large as a goose quill. In both ends of the same bolt, some have what resembles a spur with points on the ends. The device prolonged the act, intensifying pleasure. 
Thus, one has to imagine the locals' disappointment at seeing the Spaniards naked. Yet, just as all men in his situation would, Pigafetta insists that all the women loved us very much, more than their own men. The population of Cebu wholeheartedly embraced Christianity, with nearly a thousand converting over just a few days. The king took the name Charles, and Magellan agreed to leave behind two Spaniards to educate them further in the religion and language of the Europeans. Although it worked here, peaceful conversion didn't necessarily save indigenous peoples from the fate doled out by European whims. Historian Howard French lectures us that there is nothing in the historical record to suggest that if Africans or other indigenous peoples had widely adopted Christianity, it would have materially altered the trajectory of their interactions with the Europeans. After all, Benin and the Congo were each destroyed by the transatlantic slave trade, despite both civilizations eagerly converting to Christianity. French continues, The overall impression one gets, though, is that the missionary work of the late 14th and 15th centuries was mostly about providing religious and ideological cover for the horrors of the recent innovation we now know as chattel slavery, not to mention an intra-European competition for legitimacy and prestige in which the Catholic Church and a global contest with Islam played outsized roles. Magellan never questioned how quickly the locals accepted Christianity. Burgreen writes that his accomplishments had gone to his head and caused him to take on an increasingly zealous approach to religious matters. Throughout the voyage, he had displayed a penchant for piety, but now he went further, threatening to kill those who defied his crusade. This time, Magellan intended to carry out his threat. Before that week had gone, Pigafetta wrote that all the people of that island and some of the other islands were baptized. But there were holdouts. Magellan sent word to the reluctant chieftains that if they did not convert immediately and swear allegiance to King Charles, he would confiscate their property, a European concept that was nearly meaningless to the islanders, and he vowed to punish them with death, a threat they understood but chose to ignore. To demonstrate his seriousness, Magellan sent a band of his men to wreak havoc. We burned one hamlet which was located on a neighboring island because it refused to obey the king or us. We set up a cross there, for those people were heathens, Pigafetta said, without a trace of remorse as the smoldering ashes sent a sickening plume into the sky. Although the violence succeeded in an extraction of loyalty pledges to his newly converted blood brother chieftain, Magellan began to realize that the impromptu conversion had done little to remove the locals' practice of worshipping idols, a direct violation of his faith's Ten Commandments, rules that the converts likely didn't even comprehend. Seeking to divorce his new converts from their pagan acts, Magellan bet everything on a miracle telling his allied chieftain that his god had the ability to cure the sick. As such, he informed the locals that he would allow the chief to behead him 
if baptism didn't heal the prince's ailing brother. The Spaniards made a show out of it, baptizing him, his two wives, and ten girls, despite the fact that the prince appeared so sick that he could neither stand nor speak. The captain general then had the young man drink some almond milk, and voila, five days later, the man was standing. Burgreen writes that, In the following days, Magellan, inflamed with biblical fervor, destroyed idols arrayed along the shore, and incited the agitated islanders to follow his example. Cebu and the Philippines as a whole has remained devout Catholics, and the story of the healing power of their god introduced to them by Ferdinand Magellan has played out throughout the realm's subsequent history. Forty-five years after Magellan set foot on the island, Europeans returned to find an image of Mary and Jesus that had reportedly been given to the Queen of Cebu. That image was displayed in a sick ward during an epidemic that was claiming the lives of the island's children. Miraculously, just a few days in the presence of the image, they were healed. The painting was later utilized to contain a cholera epidemic of 1883. Magellan's Cross remains as one of the island's foremost travel locations, but it is unlikely that the cross that graces the photos of Taurus is authentic. Yet that doesn't stop them from illegally chipping away portions of it in order to derive some of the healing properties from the holder. Of course, Magellan isn't a saint of the Catholic Church. That honor requires at least two miracles, as well as quite a few less murders than Ferdinand was known to have committed. We don't know if this miracle cure was a clever ruse, or a sign that Ferdinand had truly gone off the deep end of believing that he had been chosen for great things by his god. Psychologist and author Arlen Schoenhick notes that the god complex is a pattern in which an individual believes they have great power, ability, infallibility, influence, and are superior to others. It often refers to behaviors associated with narcissistic personality disorder or mania. Someone like this may feel entitled to special treatment, act as though rules don't apply to them, and generally disregard the needs of others. They can also become intensely jealous and controlling. Individuals suffering from a god complex are also quite easy to manipulate. Seeking to expand his conversion efforts, he turned next towards a tribe known as the Lapu-Lapu, residents of the island of Mactan. Although he was offered local assistance in the coming fight, Magellan refused in order to show the island's residents, quote, how the Spanish lions fought. Bergerine informs us that the inner circle of Magellan seriously doubted their captain's latest action, questioning his judgment and perhaps his sanity. One crew member wisely stated that a man who carried on his shoulders so momentous a business had no need to test his strength. From victory, he would benefit little, and from the opposite, the armada, which was more important, would be set at risk. After all, their primary mission was to arrive safely at the Spice Islands, a feat that they had yet to achieve. 
fearful of thieves preying upon empty ships during the battle, Magellan took with him only the bare minimum of men that he believed would be required. He himself would of course lead them in full Spanish regalia and resplendent armor. Despite the fact that he hadn't fought in a pitched battle since his early days serving Portugal against the Moroccan Moors. Pigafetta was among those selected to suit up for the battle. He wrote that at midnight, 60 of us set out armed with corsets and helmets, together with the Christian king, the prince, some of the chief's men, and 20 or 30 balagahai. We reached Mactan three hours before dawn. Incredibly, the enemy's chief, a warrior named Lapu-Lapu, asked to postpone the attack until morning so he could accumulate more men. Seeking to maximize his glory, Magellan consented, only to realize that their enemy had retreated to defensive positions that would be far more difficult to remove them from. The captain general had lost precious time, along with the advantages of darkness and a favorable tide. Bergreen reveals that the increased distance from the longboats to the shore meant that Magellan's men would be completely exposed to Lapu-Lapu spears for a much longer period of time as they waited to land. And it meant that the ships would be so far from the scene of battle that their crossbows and artillery would be rendered useless. Pigafetta tells us that 49 of the men leaped into the water up to their thighs, while 11 remained behind to guard the longboats, in the unlikely event that they needed to retreat. As Magellan's men advanced slowly through the water, 1,500 warriors emerged from the jungle, far more than the few dozen that Ferdinand had anticipated. The Spaniards formed up two divisions and began to fire off their guns, which remained quite ineffective during this time period. Although the shots went through the Lapu-Lapu's thin wood shields, they were unable to slow down the advancing forces. Pigafetta wrote frustratingly that the enemy never stood still, but leaped around, covering themselves with their shields. They shot so many arrows at us and hurled so many bamboo spears, some of them tipped with iron, at the Captain General, in addition to pointed stakes hardened with fire, stones, and mud that we could scarcely defend ourselves. As the Spaniards finally emerged from the water, Lapu-Lapu's warriors melted back into the jungle, allowing Magellan to angrily burn their village to the ground. We discussed before how the written account of prior Spanish conquests had given them a massive advantage. It allowed them to predict how individuals would react, but these were just probabilities. Rather than intimidating the natives as had been typical, the act of destroying the settlement enraged the enemy. After just one house was lit up, 50 warriors emerged from their hiding places to charge the Spaniards. A crew member fell upon having his thigh slashed. Pigafetta details that our men, wanting to avenge this, charged against the heathens, who beat a retreat. And as our men were chasing them, they came out of a path at the backs of our soldiers, as if it had all been planned as an ambush. 
and with ear-splitting shouts, pounced on our men and began to kill them. Magellan had ignored every piece of device in preparing for this conquest. He had no intelligence on the enemy's size or strength. He expected to face dozens with sticks, and instead faced down an army with weapons capable of breaking through their Spanish armor. The danger he faced soon dawned on him, managing to break through his god complex only after he felt the tip of a very real poisoned arrow that had found itself embedded in his right leg. He finally gave the order to retreat, despite the fact that it would humiliate him in front of his newly converted friends. Still, the great Hernan Cortez had failed during his first interaction with the Aztecs, only to regroup and then level the civilization. Although Ferdinand had no news of what was happening in Central America, he was cut from the exact same Iberian cloth. Despite the setback, Magellan would have still retained hope that European medicine, ingenuity, and artillery would be enough to save him. As they retreated, Lapu-Lapu ordered his soldiers to intensify their attack. They had come to the realization that the Spaniards' legs weren't covered in armor and began to concentrate their fire. They managed to knock Magellan's helmet off twice. There were so many spears, arrows, and stones thrown that the Spanish soldiers could do nothing but stand still in knee-high water, praying for salvation. But no help was forthcoming. After all, Ferdinand's allies from Cebu had been specifically ordered to stand and watch how the Spanish lions fought. Likewise, the men on the distant ships had no interest in joining the fray of what was clearly a losing battle. Their hesitation cost Ferdinand his life. Bergreen writes that Magellan was rapidly weakening from the effects of the poisoned arrow in his leg as the implacable Macanese closed in and the two sides fought hand to hand. An Indian hurled a bamboo spear into the Captain General's face, but the latter immediately killed him with his lance, which he left in the Indian's body. Then, trying to lay his hand on his sword, he could draw it out but halfway, because he had been wounded in the arm with a bamboo spear. When the natives saw that, they all hurled themselves upon him, one of them wounded him on the left leg with a large cutlass, which resembles a scimitar, only larger. The wounded leader turned back many times to see whether we were all in the boats. Pigafetta took care to note, and without that concern, not a single one of us would have been saved in the boats, for while he was fighting, the others retired to the boats. Meanwhile, the scimitar's repeated blows took their mortal toll. That cursed the Captain General to fall face downward, when immediately they rushed upon him with iron and bamboo spears and with their cutlasses, until they killed our mirror, our light, our comfort, and our true guide. Thereupon, beholding him dead, we wounded, retreated as best we could to the boats, which were already pulling off. Hernan Cortes had used a mere 800 conquistadors to defeat the Aztecs. Francisco Pizarro had only needed 140 to take down the Incan Empire. 
Christopher Columbus, an Italian sailing for Spain, subjected the Taino peoples of the Caribbean to the horrors of slavery with just three ships of explorers. In 1519, Magellan and Cortes set forth on the adventures of their lifetime, attempting to achieve a name greater than Columbus. For Ferdinand Magellan, the key to everlasting fame would come via economic trade along an ocean route that only he could find. Having survived countless storms, multiple mutinies, and numerous disease outbreaks, he fell because of his own illusions of grandeur. He never reached the fabled Spice Islands. After the furious battle ended, the hacked pieces of the explorer's corpse drifted aimlessly in the water near the beach at Mactan, until the victorious warriors claimed them. Although the surviving Spaniards requested his body in order to properly lay him to rest, the Lapu-Lapu refused, as they intended to keep his bones as a memorial to their victory. Nothing of the explorer was ever recovered, not even his armor. That memorial remains today. Unlike Magellan's cross on Cebu, the most impressive sight along the Mactan Harbor today is a giant statue of Lapu-Lapu, brandishing his bamboo spear at the ready as he gazes protectively over the Pacific. In our next episode, we will trace the final journey of the surviving crew of the Armada of the Malacos. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word. Thank you.